so this week, earlier this week, uh, I had a really cool opportunity. Uh, there's an organization in, our, uh, in Canton called Tom Todd, and it's started by a good friend of mine named Joel Daniel Harris. And uh, Tom Todd, their whole thing is working with junior high students. Uh, they do a variety of things from summer camps to innovation labs to actually working in the junior high, in the middle schools with them. Uh, if you haven't seen me yet today, I have a broken blood vessel in my right eye. This is the only thing I can attribute this to is I hung out with junior hires this week. Uh, I don't know where else that would have come from. Uh, so I got to spend uh, a couple hours at Hartford, which uh, now houses uh, the STEAM Academy uh, for Canton, Science, Technology, Engineering, Art, Math, and Medicine. That meets at Hartford just down the way here. Uh, and what Tom Todd was doing in, at Hartford was something called What If 101. Um, and here's how they describe it. What If 101 is con about connecting students with their surrounding community, putting middle schoolers together with community leaders and organizations to explore challenges, assets, and how their community is changing over time. And with those insights, student students formulate plans to engage a positive impact in their community. And so in sum, what Tom Todd is doing is trying to help junior hires think about what's our community like and how could we try to make a difference. So I got to go with one other person. I got paired up with Dan Meglin, who's the city engineer for the city of Canton. Now, as I've mentioned before, most people don't see the church or pastors as forces for good in their communities. That's just not how people see us anymore. So I was actually really honored to be invited. And I'm curious, if you could just imagine yourself being invited into a space like that. Imagine for a moment that you're a pastor, you're invited to come speak to middle school students who are trying to think about how to have a positive impact in their community. What would you say? Think about what would you say to these junior hires who are asking you as a pastor, why do you matter <laughs> to our community? And so I decided to focus on two things. I talked about two things. I talked about love, and I talked about service. So I briefly talked about the unique role of the church in forming people to love one another and their communities. And I just want you to think about that just for a second, about what other institution in our world is actually called to do that, to instill love in people between one another and for their communities. If we're really lucky, our families do that for us. If we're really lucky. But for so many, that's not the case. And even when it is, our families tend to not be communities of diversity. And so there is a natural limitation to even the way in which our families can try to form us into people who know how to love other people in the places that we live. Truthfully, the church is the only institution that exists whose stated purpose is to cultivate people's capacity to love, to love even if our, our enemies. And if I were being honest, that at the end of the day, it's only love that stands a chance at manifesting true and lasting positive impact in our communities. And I just want you to think about how profound a statement that is. For all the people who are committed to doing good in our communities, that I would say the only way that that's lasting substantive change is when it's born out of love, and the church is the only institution whose whole identity is predicated on trying to help people understand 
how to love one another. So that was all for free because it's actually the second characteristic that I want to focus on this morning, service. And I would say that alongside love, and even more like as an extension or an expression of love, the church following Christ's example is called to be a serving community. We're called to be a serving community. So actually, in truth, it's the church that ought to be, my little clicker, it's the church that ought to be leading the charge for positive impact in our communities. If anybody else is seen as leading the charge for positive impact in our communities, we've actually sacrificed something that's supposed to belong to us as the body of Christ. Not because we're meant to be social service agencies. The church is not meant to be a social service agency but because we understand God's commitment to entering into places of darkness and brokenness in order to bring light and healing. This is our God. This is what he does. He identifies places of brokenness and darkness, and he goes to those places to bring healing and light. For what God has done in our own lives we are called to do in the lives of others. So our text this morning comes from Philippians 2, 1 to 11. I'd love to read this together. Hopefully it's familiar. Paul writes and he says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and mind. Do nothing, nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father this is the word of the Lord amen so gang this is our third week in this series about the good and beautiful community and as we think about that, the good and beautiful community, I really want to make sure that we see what Paul, the move that Paul is making here. Because I think it's absolutely vital for how we think about what it means to be the church. Specifically, I want us to notice that what his appeal for how the Philippian church ought to think and act is grounded in. It's not the thought patterns of the world. Paul doesn't say, look around at the best of what's happening around you and do your best to be like that. Nor does he say, just look at the immediate, uh, your immediate context and its needs 
and then figure out what it means to be the church based on that. But he says, look to Christ. <laughs> like that's where we look, is we look to Christ. And I find that incredibly instructive because it means that as we think about what it means to be the church, the question we must ask isn't personal. We don't ask, well, what do I think the church ought to be like? Nor is it experiential. We don't ask, well, what have I grown up with and gotten accustomed to? And it's not pragmatic. Well, what seems to be possible or needed? Those are not the questions that we're supposed to ask when we're trying to understand what it means to be the church. The question that we have to ask, Paul is saying, is Christological. Paul says, what is Jesus like? And we answer that question, of course, we answer the question of what the church is and ought to look like by looking to Jesus. And of course, if we were to do that, there's just so much to explore. But today I want to highlight what Paul says in verses 5 to 7. He says, in your relationships with one another, brothers and sisters have the same mindset as Christ, who being in the very nature of God didn't consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. So friends, whatever else it means to be the church, it means that like Christ, we are to take a servant posture in and toward the world. And so to illustrate this, I'm going to call our attention to two stories that Jim Smith tells in this chapter from the Good and Beautiful Community. But before I get to those, I want to share with you how he begins the chapter because it kind of sets the stage for how he tells the stories. And I thought it was funny, and I hope you'll think it's funny. If you haven't read this yet, he begins, I once asked a pastor, if the life of discipleship to Jesus really takes root in a community of people, particularly in a local church, how would you know if it was really beginning to make a difference? And just think about for a second how you might answer that question yourself. If a church were to get really serious about discipleship, how would you know it? And without hesitation, he said, in committee meetings. How many people thought that was your answer? <laughs> that would not have been my answer. Now, if you haven't looked at the chapter yet, you really should. You should read everything that he goes on to say from there. But the essential point that he goes on to make is that church committee meetings actually provide a natural window into what he calls the competition of narratives. And in this case, the competition between a narrative that's based on self-preservation versus a narrative that's based on self-sacrifice. And here's how he unpacks it. He says this, churches provide us with many things, a spiritual home, a common vision, and over time, a history of great memories. People love their church communities. We become protective of them, and we want them to succeed. And there is nothing wrong with loving the community of Christ followers who have nurtured you and perhaps your family for many years or even generations. And there is nothing wrong with wanting things to go well with your church and its ministry. The problem, he says, comes when the most important consideration, the dominant desire, and the main focus of a community becomes its own success. Just as an individual whose whole life is focused on meeting his or her own needs becomes narcissistic and self-centered and ineffective and ultimately unhappy, 
so also communities can become so focused on themselves that they lose their souls. And he says that when that happens, the larger vision, the one that brought the community into existence, has been eclipsed. And the community no longer exists to fulfill its original mission, but simply to stay alive. And this is often, he says, the first step towards spiritual death and ultimately the demise of the community. And that sort of posture, Smith is arguing, is at odds with the example of Jesus, who so trusted in the goodness of God, his Father, and the abundance of the kingdom that he was able to lay down his life for the sake of others. There was no fear in Jesus. He was completely at home in his relationship with his Father in this kingdom that he came to announce. And that's precisely what Paul names in this letter to the Philippian church. He says, in being found in appearance as a man, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place and he gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus shows us that a selfless, sacrificial, servant-hearted life towards others is the blessed life. Like That's what Jesus, Jesus didn't come as an aberration or this like crazy one-off. Jesus came to show us this is the kind of way that God has intended those in his image to live. It's vital for us, but it's also essential to the spiritual vitality of congregational life as well. And so to make that point in the chapter, Smith kind of juxtaposes the story of two different churches. And I just want to tell you the story of those two churches as he tells it. So church one, these are his stories. Jim says, I get a call from a local pastor who asked me to lunch. He told me that his church had held a meeting and wanted to offer several thousand dollars to our campus ministry program. And I was elated as I thought about what this money could do for our students. And then the pastor said, all we're asking is that you teach a Sunday school class for young people. I agreed, and not long after, there were about 25 students from the college who came to the class. Everything seemed to be going well, and then he he says, I got a call from the pastor a month later. Jimmy said, we have a problem. Your college students are not attending our worship service. They're coming to your class and then leaving, either going to other churches or just going home. He says, I was surprised to hear that. I wasn't aware of this problem as I myself also left to worship at our home church with my family. And the pastor went on, if you're not going to get your kids in worship, then we're not going to fund your ministry any longer. And I asked some of the students in the Sunday school class why they didn't want to go to the worship service where we met, especially those who had no other church home. And they all said the same thing. It's boring. There's no one under 50. No one even talks to us, and so we stopped going. And I couldn't force them to go, and soon I stopped teaching, and the money was no longer given. Unfortunately, this church was focusing on its needs, not the students' needs. Church one. Church two. In contrast, he's telling this other story. In contrast, the following year, I got a call from a lay leader at another church who said, Jim, our church has been praying a lot, and we feel that we have a lot to offer young people. We're an older congregation and not very large, but we have a lot of wisdom, and we care about the next generation. 
We know you work with college students, and we want to ask you to help us find out how to minister to them. And over the next few months, I met with the people at this church. They had no money to offer. They simply wanted to know what college students needed in a home church. And I told them that first, they like to eat. They're used to having no money, and the cafeteria in those days was not open on Sundays. And the people at the church said, we're good at food. Second, the students who are from out of state often miss their families. They could use a warm hug and a sense of being welcomed. The church folks said, we are good at hugging. And I concluded, I think that's about it. And then one older lady said, well, they like our worship style, Jim. We don't have any guitars, just an organ, and we sing hymns. And I said, if you love them and feed them, I don't think they'll mind. They're not as interested in being entertained as people think they are. And I invited about a half dozen students to attend the church with me. There was a lot of hugging and when we came in the door. The worship service was a traditional one with hymns and scripture reading, some liturgy, a sermon, and communion. The pastor had a great heart and offered a solid message. I could tell that the students felt at home. There was nothing hip or cool about it, but they got plenty of hip and cool during the rest of their week. After the service, we went to the fellowship hall. The ladies of the church had made a feast, complete with the mandatory green bean casserole and jello with fruit inside. <laughs> the students loved it. So did I, he said. In fact, I never left that church. It was such an others-minded congregation that a few years later, they decided to end the ministry that they had in that part of town to form a new congregation, which became Chapel Hill United Methodist Church, where I still attend. So he tells those stories, and then he asks, what was the difference between these two churches? The first was living out of a narrative of autonomy. We're kind of by ourselves and just trying to bolster ourselves and self-preservation. They were willing to make a financial investment so long as it elevated their status and perpetuated the status quo. The second church was living out of a narrative of servanthood and self-sacrifice. They had a sober assessment of themselves, and despite not feeling like they had much to offer, they were ready, willing, and able to serve others with no strings attached and to open themselves up to new relationships and the possibility of really major forms of transition and change. And then here's how he concludes. How can we do this? How was the second church able to do this, whereas the first church wasn't? The solution is found in the kingdom of God. He says, as noted in chapter 2, faith and love spring from the hope that we discover in the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom. We have confidence in a great future. We know that nothing will happen to us that God in his wisdom has not allowed and that he cannot use for his good. We are safe and secure. And in that condition, we can move from self-focus to focusing on others. He says, the first church I later discovered was really living in fear. Though they had a lot of money, they were aging quickly, and with no new people coming into the church, they faced the possibility of closing their doors. They confused the life of their church with the kingdom of God. And all churches have a life cycle. They come and go, but the kingdom of God is eternal. And in actuality, the life, power, and reason for the existence of local churches is rooted in the kingdom of God, and it will never falter, ever. 
The second church knew this instinctively. Even though they loved their little church and could wax nostalgic about their history, they were also ready to move on if needed, which in fact they did. And out of the death of that church came new life. Now listen, I've read a lot of the chapter's content, not because I think that the stories that Jim Smith shares are necessarily perfect analogies for where we find ourselves today. That's not my point. But because they illustrate something that is actually vital to the life of all churches, and perhaps especially for ones in seasons of life such as ours. Namely this, that most of us can find it within ourselves to be servant-oriented when we find that we're in seasons of growth and abundance. That comes somewhat naturally to most of us. The real question is whether we can find it within ourselves to be servant-oriented and self-sacrificial when we may feel weak or fearful. And we, ask, we can ask, can we, we can wonder, can, could I say, maybe even in continuity with this image that stood here for a long time behind whoever's preaching week in and week out, could we say, even in times of distress and doubt, not my will, but yours be done. It's in that spirit that I certainly want to encourage every single one of us here this morning, beginning with myself, to examine our hearts and our lives this morning and ask this question. There's a question we should all ask ourselves. Is there any way God may be calling me to step into some expression of servanthood these days? Just to open ourselves up to that question this morning. God, is there a way in which you want me to step more fully into a posture of servanthood in some way, shape, or form in my life right now? But there's also a number of ways that I want to invite us to think about this at a congregational level. Uh, so, at, I don't know, a couple leadership council meetings ago, we were reflecting on how helpful we thought our last congregational conversation was. And we all agreed that we should look at scheduling more of these, maybe once a quarter or so. And so these aren't meant to be meetings, right? When we have congregational meetings, we come together for like, you know, some sort of business and we're voting on something. That's not what I'm talking about. But opportunities for us just to share in conversation about what's happening and what we sense God might be up to in our lives and the life of this church. So we're looking at Sunday, November 7th as a next time to have one of these congregational conversations after the service. And just ahead of that, about a month ahead of that, uh, there's three things in relation to today's, today's sermon that I want to offer up to all of us to consider and pray over and even discuss as we sort of look forward to that congregational conversation. So you might think about these things under the headings of vision, mission, and ministry. I'm going to talk about these things. These aren't like programs or decisions. Like These are just things that I'm putting out in relation to uh, the theme of the scripture this morning for us to have the next month to just wonder and pray and talk about before we have a congregational conversation together. So vision, mission, and ministry, and these are things that in each area that it feels that God has been stirring and building in my and Amy's hearts related to this idea of the church as a serving community. And so we, are, we have or we will be discussing these things with the leadership council, uh, but I, I think it's just really important um, for the life of our church that we all have an opportunity to think about them as well. So vision. Anybody know what our church's vision statement is? 
Hey, all I hear is mumbling, but I assume that those are the right words. I assume some of you actually know it, which is really impressive to me. We invite seekers and followers to come with us on an ever-deepening journey of discipleship as we serve God by building up the community of Jesus. So I want to say two things about that statement. First, I love it. <laughs> like, I really love so much about that statement. Was anyone here, like, part of writing it? Anybody remember, like, when it came together? Yeah. Sandy wrote it. <laughs> All right. So I don't know how long it's been around or what that process was, but I am actually deeply motivated by the sentiments expressed in this. I'm huge on the language of invitation. I appreciate this mindfulness about, like, thinking about both seekers and followers. I love the recognition that discipleship is an ever-deepening journey, like it lasts our whole life, and I love the emphasis on being a Jesus-centered community. I, I just love all of those things about it. I think it's beautiful. The second thing I want to say is that it's not actually a vision statement, like in the classic sense, which isn't a problem. It's just something to note. It's really more of like a purpose statement, right? So it helpfully describes an internal understanding of our purpose and aims as a congregation, whereas a traditional vision statement speaks to some sort of aspirational reality that we long to see come into existence. And more than that, at least when it comes to Christian communities and organizations, seeking to be other-oriented, I would say that the best vision statements actually describe a future that's not achievable on your own, right? You have some uh, vision, this idea of something you would love to see God do that's in some ways grandiose, and you go, that, we could never do that on our own. It necessitates the Holy Spirit and lots of other people working together. So just as an example, a Christian, say there was a Christian adoption agency, a Christian adoption agency may have a vision like this, a loving Christian home for every child that needs one, Right? You could see that being an animated vision for like a Christian orphanage, and you would know one particular Christian orphanage could never complete it. But that's the vision that animates them. So with that in mind, I want to share the sort of vision that's been emerging in our hearts as pastors as we're kind of like, you know, just over two years in of trying to weave together the history of this church and everything that that entails, the context that we find ourselves in, the gifts at our disposal, the voice of the Holy Spirit, and so I just want to suggest this as a language that we're thinking about in terms of an animating vision for our church, that we would want to see the whole body of Christ in Canton perpetually growing in health and unity in creating the conditions for spiritual and cultural renewal throughout the city. This is a vision that's been growing in our hearts and minds as pastors in relationship to our own church that out of a servant-oriented posture and a sense of even historic responsibility as Canton's first church, that this is, would be a vision that's actually not just about us, but it's about our desire to see the whole body of Christ in our city flourish. And it wouldn't be about just growing in size, but in health and unity, believing that out of this would be created the conditions for renewal, spiritual and cultural renewal, which are two sides of the same coin in God's kingdom. So that's the first thing I would love for us to think about together over the course of the next month. The next one is mission. We've talked a good deal about two important realities from time to time. 
One is the growing disinterest and suspicion that people have towards the church, especially those under 40. I didn't mention this, but when I went into that junior high this last week, I was wearing my clergy collar, and nobody knew what I did. Banker, lawyer, doctor, like, it took 20 guesses before someone's like, pastor? (laughs) And it's just a, a quick little anecdote to say, like, this is the world that we live in now. Even when somebody walks in wearing a clergy collar, it's just not recognized that that person might be a pastor. So we live in that world right now. And second, we've talked about our need as a church to explore and invest in new generative relationships. That for us, living on a relational island is not an option if we desire a vital future for our church. So Amy and I believe that we're in need of establishing a new venture whose purpose it is to bring people together who want to imagine new ways of serving and blessing our city. And this is kind of a name that we've been kicking around that we might give to this. The Resurrection Collective. This is not thinking about changing the name of our church, not thinking about changing our church's identity. It's thinking about, could our church envision starting a new initiative, a new project, a new um, expression of mission that would bring people together to imagine new ways of serving and blessing our city? Resurrection, which carries the beautiful idea of God breathing new life into things, bringing about new creation. And of course, it signals a link to our church. This is a mission initiative of our church. And then this idea of collective, a word that communicates the idea of drawing people into a cooperative community. So that's sort of the second thing, servant-oriented thing that's on our minds and hearts these days. And the last question I want to ask, there's already been a little bit of talk about this uh, amongst a handful of us about maybe a new prayer ministry. Um, But here's, uh, I want to go back to the book for a second. This is how, towards the end of this chapter. Jim's talking and he says, I was once with Dallas Willard speaking at a conference in California. Dallas Willard's a name you've heard me mention before. He says, I opened the evening session with a talk about God's grace and human transformation. And after a break, Dallas got up to speak and he opened with these attention-catching words. I'm going to tell you what is the single most important task of a Christian, especially those in church leadership. The most important task we have, especially for those in church leadership, is to pray for the success of our neighboring churches. He said that when we pray, genuinely pray for the success of the churches that are in our proximity, we're breaking the narrative of selfishness and entering into the mind of God who is also praying for the success of those churches. The practice, he said, puts us in sync with the kingdom of God, and he encouraged not only pastors, but entire churches to do this. So I'm actually elated that, like, this is not a super new idea here, right? Every time that we put out an edition of The Helper, there's a short list of church names, right, that folks are invited to pray for. So I love that that DNA is already here and in our church. I'm also aware that that list is tremendously out of date (laughs) and that our engagement with it right now is not very intentional. And so what I'm asking for potentially as a final response to this sermon is that I would invite us into having some more conversation and prayer about maybe establishing this, uh, if we we were to see a new prayer ministry emerge, that at the very center of it, there would be people who would get excited about taking on the responsibility of renewing our awareness of and connection to 
all of the other local churches in the city of Canton and would help us know how can we pray for them to reach out and find out. So those are three quick things um, that are sort of on your pastor's minds and hearts these days as we think about what it means for us to be a servant-oriented church. So let me do the, the best that I can to gather all that up into prayer um, as, we, as we sing again and then head into communion. Um, Jesus, I'm just mindful, of course, in this moment of how significant it was uh, that you didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped and held on to and used for your own advantage, but you took the nature of a servant. You did that for us and for this world that you so desperately love. And I thank you, God, that you invite us to mirror that, to step into that own life ourselves, to, in our personal lives and in our corporate life as a congregation, you invite us to know what it means to live out of this servant identity like you did. So for all of us here this morning, as we're searching our own hearts about how you might be calling us, leading us towards a more servant-oriented posture in our own lives, help us to hear clearly what your Holy Spirit is saying. And as we're thinking about our own congregation and its future and the things that we're a part of and that we're trying to do and we're, the ways in which we're seeking you, help us, God, to know what it means for us to continue to grow um, in our identity as a serving community. Thank you for your presence in our midst, the work that you're doing in our hearts right now. Help us to tend to that as we pray and as we sing.